They lived in Indonesia. And they died in their thousands. Men, women, children. Accurate figures for those who died are difficult to ascertain. Ranging from 10,000 as a definite minimum to maybe as high as 30,000 people. Whole villages were destroyed and half a million people were displaced. Now you probably think I'm referring to the Boxing Day tsunami. But I'm not. I'm referring to the campaign of terror waged over the past four years in the Sulawesi region and Moluccas Islands of Indonesia by the militant Islamic group Lasko Jihad in which local Christians were murdered, tortured, forcibly converted to Islam, circumcised and virtually enslaved. And despite overwhelming evidence of these appalling human rights abuses, the Indonesian government repeatedly failed to act against Laska Jihad and there was strong evidence that the military authorities were actually acting in collusion with the, address, with the aggressors. If you're a media watcher, you will know that the situation was reported in the Western media. But despite such a high loss of life, especially over the period 2000 to 2002, it received nothing like the publicity which rightly surrounded the effects of the tsunami. Not one of us here is ignorant of the terrible events that happened on Boxing Day and our hearts have gone out to those who suffered. Yet I would guess that very few of us are aware of this other tragedy which occurred in the same part of the world. Indonesian Christians suffering appallingly and yet there seemed no one to plead their cause or to right their wrongs. Now let me report something else which as far as I know has gone largely unreported in the Western media. Here's a report I read this week coming out of Singapore and I quote Few people are aware that the tidal wave has destroyed one of the strong centres of Islamic terrorism. An army of 30,000 well-trained terrorist insurgents has been wiped out of existence. Banda Aceh was an extremist and militant Islamic province that has sought independence from the Indonesian government and wrought bitter persecution and death on Christians in that area. A formidable ally of world terrorism and Al-Qaeda operatives has been removed. Now, if this is true, and I'm working hard to verify the exact details, so I'd caution that, but let me ask you a really tough question. If this is true, is it possible that in some way, therefore, the tsunami acted as God's judgment on these particular people? Now notice the question I'm asking. I'm not asking, is this God's judgment on those who have persecuted his people? I'll return to this at the end. 
Rather, I'm asking, is it possible that this is God's judgment on those who persecuted his people? Or is such a thing totally unthinkable? And I'm sure you're thinking of all the objections in your mind at the present time. If this book is to be believed, the Bible, as an accurate reporting of how God acts, not only towards individuals, but towards people, groups and nations, then the answer must surely be, yes, it is possible. And there are numerous accounts in this book of God acting in such a way. Right back to a worldwide flood that destroyed the whole of the human race, apart from eight people. Let alone later the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And today in our evening series, Major Lessons from the Minor Prophets, we come to a little-known book that illustrates this particular point. Not just little-known, but little in size as well. It's just one chapter of 21 verses. The shortest book in the Old Testament is called The Prophecy of Obadiah. And you're going to need the page number, most of you, to find it, I expect. It describes God's D-Day. That is, God's Day of the Lord. The Day of Judgment against a nation called Edom. So, read with me first of all. Not easy to understand. There are Bibles in the pews, alright? Page 925. It's on the screen. Page 925 simply says Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise and let us go up against her for battle. Is the message to Edom. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, robbers in the night, Oh, what a disaster awaits you! Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. Detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom? Men of understanding in the mountains of Esau, you warriors of Teman will be terrified and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter because of the violence against your brother Jacob. You will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. 
You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them and their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. The house of Jacob will be like a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. The house of Esau will be stubble. They will set it on fire and consume it There will be no survivors from the house of Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria and Benjamin will possess Gilead. The company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord. This is God's word. Now, you may never have heard of Obadiah before this evening. And you may never have heard of the nation of Edom. For as the prophet predicted, it was wiped from the face of the earth with no survivors. You won't find Edom on a world map or included in the United Nations. And you also may not know what the issue at stake is why this came to pass, why God destroyed them. So, let's begin by trying to fill in a bit of background which we need before we can actually come to what the point is and what major lessons we learn from this minor prophet. Let's start with Obadiah. Who was Obadiah? Answer, we don't know, other than this book that we have in front of us. His name means, Obadiah, means the servant of the Lord. It's a very common Hebrew name. There are actually twelve, a dozen or so, different people called Obadiah in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. As a famous one, who was a servant of wicked King Ahab, a secret follower of the Lord who tried to protect his people. Uh, This Obadiah is almost certainly not the same character, but he is a follower, an open follower of the Lord, a man who has spent time in God's presence. And he sees, we learn at the beginning, a vision. God shows him something that is going to happen in the future. He sees and hears, and then he is sent and speaks the word of the Lord, which is what we've got here in written form. This word of the Lord is a word with two dimensions, two audiences. It's a word of consolation, to the nation of Judah, the southern part of the divided kingdom of Israel, to reassure the people 
that the Lord knows what has happened to them and will vindicate them. In contrast, it is a word of condemnation to this nation of Edom because they did nothing to help their brothers in time of need. There is no call in this book for the people of Edom to repent and change their ways. Why? Because it's already too late. It doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow. It means they will have no opportunity to change their minds. So, secondly, who are the people of Edom? Who are the focus of this little prophecy? Well, we have a lot more information about Edom and the Edomites than we do about Obadiah. Uh, the origin of the Edomites goes way back in history. If you know the Bible, if you don't, I'll try and explain it. Go right back to the father of Israel, a man called Abraham. He had a son called Isaac. And Isaac had twin sons. Their names were Esau and Jacob. And their lives were characterized by perpetual antagonism. They didn't get on very well together. Far from it. In fact, their antagonism began even before they were born when we read that before their mother gave birth they were fighting within the womb to see who would get out first. The winner, described as red and his whole body covered in hair, was called Esau, which sounds a bit like the Hebrew word for hairy. Okay? He's called hairy. His brother was quite different. He was very smooth-skinned. And he followed literally hard on the heels of his brother. In fact, when his brother was born, he was born immediately afterwards, grabbing hold of his brother's, his elder brother's heel. And so he's called in Hebrew, Yaakov, which means he grasps the heel. Jacob, we call him in English pronunciation. And these twins were as different as chalk and cheese. Not only in their appearance, but also in their characters and habits. Esau was a big, strong, outdoor type and his father just loved him. Jacob was more a soft, stay-at-home, clever type and he was his mummy's favourite boy. And this antagonism, which began in the womb and continued through their early years, continued throughout the whole of their lives and ultimately it was the younger brother, Jacob, who got the upper hand and the family inheritance he did it in a very strange way. We can read about it in the Bible in Genesis chapter 25. His brother Esau lived by his appetite. And he had a fatal liking for, of all things, red lentil stew. Now, I don't know what the recipe was, but it was a winner with Esau. And one day he came in from hunting, absolutely famished, and his brother was all ready for him with a big pot of red lentil stew. Alright, this is a story in the Bible, alright? Genesis 25. And uh, Esau was famished and he said, I'm famished, give me some of that red lentil stew. And his brother said, I'll give it you in exchange for the birthright that I inherit the family fortune. You think, what a stupid trade. But Esau wasn't too bright either, he thought only with his senses. And he said, fine. And he lost everything because he lived by his appetite. And because he loved this red stew, Hebrew word for red is Edom. So Harry also had a nickname, he was called Red. 
And these two became the founders of great nations. Jacob was the founder of the nation of Israel. God changed his name from Jacob to Israel, one who prevails with God. And Esau was also the founder of a nation named after his nickname, Edom. Alright, it took me a long time to get there. Now you know the origin of the name Edom. And this antagonism, as often with nations still today in the world, goes way back in history. And it continued throughout the centuries as they lived in close proximity with one another. The American pastor Ray Steadman comments, In the story of these nations, you also have the extended story of these two men, Jacob and Esau. God, in a sense, has put Jacob and Esau into an enlarger and blown them up to national size. As the prophet discusses this, you can see that the story of these two men continues. Israel is still Jacob and Edom is still Esau. Now, the people of Edom, if, you, if you're good at maps and things, the one coming up in a moment, the people of Edom lived to the south of Israel, to the south of the Dead Sea. It's a very rocky area, it's called the Negev. And it was full of rocky peaks and uh, passes, and if they were ever attacked, they just retreated into their mountain strongholds. Uh, this area was later conquered, we'll see in a little while, by the Nabataean Arabs and they built that incredible if you've ever been to this part of the world we're hoping to go in the autumn to visit it one of the places we've not seen yet on earth that we hope to go and see but uh, the rose red city of Petra which is in modern Jordan was built in the place where the Edomites lived after they left some nice pictures of it on the screen so that's Edom now final piece of background information hope you're still with me um, if you look at Obadiah and the passage in front of us, God has got an accusation against the people of Edom that they stood by and did nothing to help their brothers when Jerusalem was overrun by an enemy. In fact, they joined in the fun, as it were, and the slaughter and took advantage. This is the charge against them. So to what is the prophet referring? When was Jerusalem invaded? Well, there were several occasions, but there are two that are most likely. I'll simply mention them so you get an idea of the dates we're talking about. One was in 845 BC when a coalition of Philistines and Arabians entered the city and Edom took the chance to rebel against Judah. If that's true, that would make Obadiah a contemporary prophet with Elijah and Elisha. The other, perhaps more likely occasion was later. The final days of the kingdom of Judah... In 586 BC, the great empire of Babylon swept into the area and eventually destroyed the population of Judah. Many of them were killed, the rest were deported, the city was ravaged. And the psalmist records in Psalm 137 that the Edomites stood by and gloated and made fun as it happened. And if this is true, this makes Obadiah a contemporary with another great prophet, the prophet Jeremiah. We don't have time to look at it, but if you look in Jeremiah 49, almost word for word you have the prophecy of Obadiah. And no one is sure whether Jeremiah borrowed the prophecy from Obadiah or vice versa. It doesn't really matter. Whatever is the case, when this prophet Obadiah talks about this, Edom is still in existence. It's not destroyed. It's still a strong nation. In fact, it's a very self-reliant nation, as we'll see. But the Lord says, as far as he is concerned, 
he's going to judge this people group, this nation, they'll be wiped off the face of the earth with no survivors. So with that kind of background, look with me now a little more closely at the passage in front of us. And, and it divides into two parts, a big part and then at the end a smaller part. Um, the first 16 verses talk about this destruction of the nation of Edom. Uh, the last few verses, verses 17 to 21, talk about deliverance for the people of God. So look with, it, with me at each of these in turn. First of all, destruction for the nation of Edom. If you look at the passage here, if you've followed what was read, and it wasn't easy language, was it? But the root of Edom's behaviour is pride. The problem is pride. They can make a very good case for saying that the problem of human beings is the problem of pride. Pride is not just thinking more of yourself than you should do, but far worse, it is thinking more of yourself than God. It is putting or trying to put yourself in the place that God should rightfully hold in your life. It was this sin which caused Satan's downfall from an angel of light called Lucifer to the one we call the devil or Satan. The prophet Isaiah describes the fall in poetic language. Isaiah 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, Lucifer, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. That's pride. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. And it was this sin which fallen Satan used to entice our first parents, Adam and Eve, to think that they could become like God. It was pride that was their downfall. In the form of a serpent, Satan said to them, You will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, you are out of the forbidden fruit. Your eyes will be opened. You will be like God knowing good and evil. Now, while this is a serious matter for individuals, when it becomes a characteristic of a whole nation, then that nation is in deep, deep trouble. And that is the case with the nation of Edom. The Lord says it is this sin of pride which will lead to the downfall of Edom. Look again at verses 3 and 4. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks, and make your home on the heights. You say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle, and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Verses 3 and 4. Now, notice that pride is never what you might call a standalone sin. It always leads to other things. The first thing it obviously leads to is self-reliance. The Edomites thought they were safe in their rocky strongholds. No one can touch us. No one can bring us down. We're accountable to no one because we're in charge. We're the top dogs in the region. Very interesting fact about the nation of Edom that's been noticed by quite a few people. There is no record of any god or gods that the Edomites prayed to. If you read almost every other nation recorded in the Old Testament, you get a list of the gods that they worshipped and bowed down to sun, moon, stars, bales, asteroids. 
Stuart Briscoe, another preacher, would say American, but he's British, he just happens to live in America, writes, the Edomites had no allegiance to a god. This has led many scholars to believe that this unusual people were so self-sufficient, arrogant and self-satisfied that they wouldn't even call upon the name of any kind of God. They believed they had all the answers themselves. Now, think in national terms. Does that not remind you of certain nations? Not just those atheistic communist regimes that said that God was dead? Is it not in actual fact very characteristic of many of us, many of the Western nations, that think we can sort everything out by our own endeavour, by our own brilliance, by human technology? Now this kind of self-reliance and lack of accountability, if you believe you're alone responsible and accountable to no one, what happens? Moral values go out the window because there's no one above you to refer to. So what do you do? You look out for number one. And in looking out for number one, you put down number two, three, four, five, six and everybody else down the chain. It always leads to violence. What we would call, in modern jargon, human rights abuses. But what he calls it, violence against your brother Jacob, verse 10. And even when they didn't at first participate in the violence, the Edomites showed total indifference towards the people of Judah. When the invaders marched in, probably because they didn't want to risk getting pulled in and attacked themselves. Verse 11, On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth, foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Instead they stood by and they gloated over the misfortune of their ancient brothers. They showed malice. And so the Lord said, You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. And that gloating was accompanied by snide exploitation of the situation to their own advantage. Verse 13. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads, there they are, waiting to cut down the fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of trouble. Notice what the Lord said. You should not, you should not, you should not, you should not, yet they did what they should not. And the Lord therefore says, because of this, behavior, because of this pride that has led to this self-reliance this violence this malice God says they are deserving of his judgment and they will be judged in kind D-Day the day of the Lord is near they will be paid in kind verse 15 the day of the Lord is near for all nations as you have done it will be done to you your deeds will return upon your own head now notice a little bit about this judgment. I'll go through this quickly. The Lord says their judgment will be comprehensive. Verse 5, he says, If thieves come, robbers in the night, what do they normally do? They just steal some things and leave a lot of things. If great people come and steal a grape harvest, they leave some grapes behind. Not so, says the Lord. This judgment will be absolutely comprehensive. There will be nothing left. It will be unexpected. Their allies will turn upon them. Verse 7. Their friends will deceive them. Those who sit down to eat bread with them will set a trap for them. And they won't even notice it. And it will be terrifying. Verse 8. 
The Lord says, Will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, O Teman. It's probably a city called Teman, or it just means south. It could be the southern region. Will be terrified. Everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter, and it will be humiliating because of the violence against your brother Jacob. You will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever with no recovery. Twice the Lord says, There will be no survivors from the house of Esau. Now we're back to the old name, Esau. Now you may think that Obadiah's prediction that the day of the Lord is near, verse 15, was out by some centuries. But God's timing, thankfully, is not our timing. For the Lord's day, the D-day that he refers to, is a day for all nations. Did you see it in verse 15? The day of the Lord is near for all nations. And the great danger, therefore, for every nation, for every people group, is the danger of pride. Watch out for pride. Now I simply stop and ask, are we as a nation guilty of pride? Pride in our own accomplishments. Nationalistic pride in who we are above everyone else. Characterised by that self-reliance which excludes God from the equation other than as a nominal token to prove some particular point or make political capital, and which leads to violence, disregard for others. If so, we need to fear God's judgment. Now notice, God's judgment is impartial. What is he referring to? The occasion when Jerusalem was overrun. Why was Jerusalem God's city overrun? Because God's people turned against God and God judged them. He's not saying you do as you like and you can get away with it. No, God treats all people and all nations impartially. Now, if this is the case, it puts a totally different perspective on how we see God. Whenever there are disasters, people always talk about innocent victims. In the absolute, I know what people mean, but in the absolute sense of the word, from God's perspective, there are no innocent victims. We all, people and nations, stand under the judgment of the Holy God because all of us have turned our backs on God, rebelled, gone our own way, put ourselves in the place that only God rightfully deserves. So the question is, once you grasp that, then you begin to ask some pretty desperate questions. You never ask this kind of question. You've probably got a God in your own image, not the God of the Bible. Once you grasp that we're all under God's judgment, the question you ask is, is there any hope? Will we not all be condemned on the day of judgment when all the nations stand before God? Thankfully, the prophecy of Obadiah does not stop at verse 16 with destruction, but concludes with deliverance for the people of God. Look what the promise is, verse 17. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. The word deliverance, and singing about it, you rescued me. It's talking on a much bigger scale. There will be salvation. Escape from the judgment all around. And God says it will occur on Mount Zion, His chosen place, the hill upon which Jerusalem stands, the place where His chosen people, the house of Jacob or Joseph, meet to worship Him. So this salvation is for the house of Jacob or Joseph, for God's chosen people. And there at last, God will carry out his ultimate judgment through his people on Edom and Esau. That final vindication. 
Now, we're not exactly sure when this was written or what it's written about. But as with all prophecy, and we're, we're getting towards, towards the end, alright? There is always a short-term fulfilment and a much longer-term fulfilment, alright? What about the short-term fulfilment? Edom's fate. Let me simply mention some historical events. In the 5th century BC, Edom fell into Arab hands. It was conquered by the Arabs. In the 3rd century, it was overrun by the Nabataean Arabs, the ones who built Petra. And they took over these mountain strongholds and they pushed the Edomites out of their traditional lands and they shoved them into the southern part of what is Judah or Israel today. They were expelled. The remaining population were forced to live there and in the second and first centuries there's this great nationalistic Jewish family called the Maccabees who subdued the Edomites among them and forcibly converted them to Judaism. And eventually, if you know your history, eventually the Romans came along the first century and the Edomites finally ceased to exist as a nation. A few families continued. Come to the New Testament, you know all those Herods? Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa, they were all Idumeans, the same nation, the Edomites. Significantly, the family traits that had been there continued as they so often do down history. Do you remember when Jesus, in his trial, was sent by Pilate, the Roman governor, to Herod, one of these family? One of the few people in the Bible, in the New Testament record, that Jesus had nothing to say to. Because there was no hope for him. He had rejected God. And so the word of the Lord, through the prophet Obadiah, finally came to pass. But will you notice something very significant? God predicted this judgment and yet God's amazing patience was such that it took centuries before it finally came to pass. may have seemed near and yet God was showing amazing patience. Now as we come to this final bit of this and then I'll, I'll come back to the tsunami if you still get to come to that one, alright? There is a future fulfilment. One which the prophets often dimly foresaw or understood when they spoke the word of the Lord. There are hints of this in Obadiah. So look at the future fulfilment. God promises salvation on Mount Zion. What happened on Mount Zion? Mount Zion, the city of Jerusalem, the hill on which it stood, was the place where Jesus died, bearing our guilt, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews, writing to formerly people that were Jewish converts to Christianity, reminds them, you've not come to Mount Sinai, the place of law and condemnation. He says, you've come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Now, this salvation is not ours by any merit. It's for the house of Jacob. Jacob was a twister. He was a cheat. And yet God took him and transformed him. He was saved by grace. As the Apostle Paul puts it, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. And look at verse 21. It's a very intriguing verse. Deliverers will go up or go from, if you look at the footnote in the New International Version, from Mount Zion. 
those will be the people who carry the news of this salvation to the nations of the world. So in his letter to the Christians in Rome, the Apostle Paul reminds us that this good news of Jesus must be carried to all nations. And he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. Romans 10. How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so the message goes from Mount Zion to the ends of the earth, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at the final sentence of this prophecy. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. There is a future dimension in which there will be only one universal kingdom. The kingdom of Christ. The final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we've come a long way right from Genesis. We're now into Revelation right at the end. It's a consistent theme. Great story. God's story. History. His story. Revelation 11. If you know the Messiah, great theme. I want to attempt to sing it. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. He will reign forever and ever. The kingdom will be the Lord's. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perfect peace, perfect justice will reign forever. Now, back to my first question. Was the tsunami the judgment of God? I was totally amazed. Just kind of casually I looked at Google on the internet and I clicked on tsunami and God's judgment. There are literally, well I I stopped after so many pages of bulletin boards and messages, hundreds of them, of people debating this question. A lot of this was generated by a very well known American Baptist man called Henry Blackaby. Written a course that some of you have used called Experiencing God. And after seeing a map shown to him by Voice of the Martyrs, an organization that shows the places where Christians have been most martyred for Christ in recent times, and realizing that at least three of those nations were the main ones to be hit by the tsunami, this is what he said. If you read the Old Testament especially, God is very concerned how the nations treat his covenant people. The nations that persecuted offended and killed his people, God came down and destroyed them and he's the same God today, he's just as concerned about his people. Now many people disagreed and disagree very strongly. Another Baptist, Stan Parks, international liaison with the Baptist General Convention of the Texas-affiliated World Connect X Mission Network, says he categorically disagrees with Blackaby. This is what he says. If anybody deserves judgment, it's Christians who hoard the gospel and who lavish God's blessing on themselves with bigger buildings and finer homes, he said. Adding, if God gave people what they deserved, American Christians would have far more to fear than non-Christians in South Asia. So, who's right and who's wrong? Maybe they're both right. You see, all death is the final consequence of sin. God's judgment on individuals and nations. All of us face God's judgment 
unless we receive his salvation. And those who receive that salvation, if you're a Christian this evening, we are under obligation to share with our world and with the nations of the world that they're in deadly danger. And God's judgment comes in all sorts of forms. So let me leave the final word and I've simply alerted you to some of the questions I hope I made you think. With the one who is God's final word, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Did Jesus say anything about this? Yes, he did. He was asked about tragedy in his day and people who died. In great tragedies, some people who were tower fell on, other people who were butchered in the temple by the Roman soldiers. And Jesus said, do you think that these people were any worse than anyone else? You know what he said? He said, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. When and how you die, by tsunami, sickness or old age, is in a sense secondary. What is important is whether you repent before you die. If not, you will perish. I will perish. But the good news of Jesus Christ is this. John 3.16 God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish be under God's eternal judgment but will have eternal life. And today, therefore, is another day of opportunity. If you are not a Christian, Jesus says you're already in the condemnation. But he provides a way of escape, of salvation. Today is the day of God's grace. Don't miss it. This is the word of the Lord, the word of Obadiah, the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Totally consistent. Let's hear it and respond to it.